Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. So, Dr. Chan, it's great to get together today. We're going to talk a little bit about vaccines. Who gets to go first? And it's it's really a topic that's really been, gosh, all over the world. The whole planet has been living with this global pandemic for well over a year now. In Rhode Island, we're approaching our anniversary of this. But vaccines... Who gets to go first in vaccine prioritization? Big topic to discuss today. Yeah, you know what, Dr. McDonald? I'm just glad that vaccines are here. I feel like we waited uh, just about a year for them. So I think even though it's been a little bit frustrating and we'll drill down sort of on some of the uh, inside discussions that have happened, I just, you know, reminding people they're here and that's exciting and there's more coming. So definitely a bright light uh, in the future here. Yeah, it's interesting. That's my position as well. I'm just very thankful to have the vaccines. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where if I had said to anybody back in February 28th, 2020, when we had our first case in Rhode Island, you know, less than 12 months from then, you're going to have a vaccine that's safe and effective. People would be like, that's pretty cool. And we ended up having two. And, you know, it's highly likely, I think, by summer, anybody who wants vaccine is going to have one. I mean, at least I think it's a good possibility. So it kind of gets me starting. Why don't we start talking about, so Dr. Chim, what are the vaccines we have and what do you think are the ones we're going to have? Where do we start there? Yeah, great question. So we've covered this in a previous podcast, so please check those out. But just a brief summary here. You know, we currently have two mRNA vaccines, uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer. They're between 94 and 95% effective. Super exciting. We also have two uh, two other vaccines that released some data this past week. Also very exciting. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, was between was about approximately 70% effective. And the Novavax vaccine was approximately 89% effective. So definitely, uh, again, bright, uh, bright lights, bright spots in the future. Um, I think also of note, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is just one dose. So lots of potential there to, to speed things up and make it easier. You know, it will be interesting to see uh, where these vaccines come. Of course, we're kind of expecting the Johnson Johnson vaccine to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency authorization in the next week or so, which will be very intriguing. You know, it would be amazing to have three vaccines in play uh, with the next month, which I think is a possibility. And, you know, the, the effectiveness of the vaccines, it's interesting to me. Like, you know, one of the things that you and I have been chatting about is, you know, Dose one is way better than dose none, right? And it, it's one of those things where there is different effectiveness with the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. You really do need to have two doses. Uh, but even after one dose, you get some effectiveness. But the Johnson Johnson vaccine is intriguing to me because it, it's a significant amount of effectiveness after one dose. And, and you know, it, it makes me think that that does have a fair amount of promise. And I, I do know there's some research going on that looks at like, well, what if we give a second dose of the Johnson Jacks vaccine later. However, I do think, you know, to me, a, a vaccine that's even 70, 72% effective would make a big difference in our pandemic response in the United States. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I know there's been some thought about people wanting to choose their vaccines and, you know, can I get the Pfizer, Moderna over the Johnson & Johnson? I think there's going to be more and more data with the Johnson & Johnson. I think to your point, uh, this is after one shot and they're studying over and, you know, there's, the studies are ongoing with two shots. So, you know, 70% is still fantastic. And I, I think we're comparing it to the Moderna and the Pfizer, 94, 95%. But, you know, those also, you know, those results blew our expectations out of the water initially as well. Well, so I would say, you know, get the Johnson Johnson if you're offered for sure. Uh, and we're going to know a lot more about uh, some of this in the future. You know, and I think we talk about 
being effective, I think sometimes it's, it's better to put a fine, fine point on that. Like it's effective against what? And I think it's important, like from what I understand, the research is about effective of getting serious disease, not, not necessarily getting the disease, but against serious disease, like getting in the hospital or dying. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, so that, you know, that 72% for Johnson Johnson, just like the 94, 95% for Moderna and Pfizer, is based on getting sick with the virus. So, uh, you know, incredibly effective against uh, people developing symptoms, getting sick, and obviously severe sickness. And if you actually look at people that developed severe illness in Johnson Johnson vaccine, it was 85% effective in people not getting severe illness who got vaccinated. So 85% in preventing severe illness, that to me is a win-win and really really incredibly high in general. Yeah, and if we can get that mortality rate down across the United States to that below influenza, that really gets to be where it becomes like a regular disease, uh, which, and I, and I think it's something we've talked about before. Like my expectation is COVID-19 is here to stay. I think it's going to be an endemic disease. I think it's going to be controlled, but it's going to be endemic. In other words, we're going to just live with it um, like every other disease here. And so it's a matter of just living with it. So I think, you know, having a vaccine that's here for a long term is really part of it. And it really gets this question like, why do you need to vaccinate anyone? And I think it really gets this larger issue. And I think, you know, one of the most logical answers to me of why vaccinate anyone is like, because our public health measures so far are only so good. In other words, getting people to wear masks, we're, we're, we're making progress there. We're getting really good, good numbers in that area. Getting people to stay six feet apart. I think we're, we're making progress in that. But, you know, it, these are just hard public health measures to do forever. And I think one of the things you're finding is that there's, there's just not that great long-term sustainability with those public health measures. And, and even those themselves aren't going to nearly be as effective as a vaccine. So I think it really gets to like why we desperately need a vaccine is that, you know, we live in houses with other people. We work in places with other people. We go shopping around other people. It's just hard to live um, as a culture and be a social people, you know, with, with those restrictions in place. And quite frankly, they haven't been 100% effective because we really can't get everyone to do them all the time. But it really gets to me to think about the largest question for us is what's been our approach to vaccination in Rhode Island? So do you want to just chat a little about what's the Rhode Island approach been so far? Yeah, so this is a this is a great question, topic of today's podcast. And, uh, you know, we here at the Department of Health uh, have been transparent about the process. We've tried to get input from lots of different stakeholders. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think you'd agree, Dr. McDonald, is that there's been no easy answers here. And we've done our best uh, to get lots of input. We have a vaccine subcommittee comprised of uh, community members, other physicians from a wide range of backgrounds. But but it hasn't been easy. Uh, what are your thoughts? You know, the, the way I think about vaccine prioritization is, you know, there's really, in my mind, just two big goals. One is we're really trying to prevent people from dying from this disease. So that's goal number one. The second goal is we're just kind of keep people out of the hospital. And, and those are the two overarching concepts there. And I think when you think about it that way, you really get to why is that important? And to me, it's like, if we can keep people from dying and we can keep people out of the hospital, then it becomes like a normal disease in our culture. And there's treatment for it now too. And I think this is one of those other things that I think is just really amazing. We have a successful treatment for this. Like, in other words, we've talked about inpatient treatments like the remdesivir, like dexamethasone, like optimizing ventilator management, but we really do have a meaningful outpatient treatment now. We have monoclonal antibodies that are effective. Sure, you have to go somewhere, get an intravenous infusion for an hour, then be watched for another hour, but there's a treatment. In other words, you know, it would be more convenient if I could go to the drugstore, pick up a prescription and take something for 10 days like strep throat, but it just doesn't work that way. So there is a treatment here. And I think when you get back to like, 
what's the most logical approach? If it's based on risk of people dying and risk of people ending up in the hospital, it's more likely to be a fair approach in, in that regard. And I think that gets to like, what are guiding principles? So when you think about guiding principles for our vaccine program, Dr. Chan, what are you thinking about? Yeah, so I think you hit on the big one, the big one being uh, to minimize morbidity and mortality, right? So people getting sick and, uh, of course, dying. And then I think there's a number of other considerations. I mean, one of the big focuses here at the Department of Health has also been access and equity. And I think that's for part of our plan to focus on some of these geographical hotspots. So I think, unfortunately, one thing that we've seen, uh, you know, perhaps unexpected during the pandemic is that uh, the virus has affected uh, disproportionately populations that continue to be underserved, thinking African-American, Black, Hispanic, Latino populations, some of our denser uh, communities. And we want to make sure, certainly, as we uh, as we implement vaccine and think about different approaches, that these populations are also prioritized. Uh, so it's not everyone else getting the vaccine, but the vaccine goes, uh, goes where it's needed most. I think the other thing too that kind of plays in from a logistical standpoint is we want to make sure that no doses are wasted and um, I can't emphasize this enough I mean the you know the Pfizer uh, vaccine comes in packages doses of 975 and the Moderna comes in 100 uh, so it's uh, you know if you have a, a clinical practice or a doctor's office with five people um, you know, these vaccines need cold storage chains. They have a shelf life. It's not like you can just give a, you know, a package of Moderna vaccine or Pfizer vaccine to a smaller do doctor's office. You really, we really need to account for every single dose. And so there's this element of redistribution, uh, et cetera. Anything else to add to that, Dr. McDonald? You know, you really hit on that. I think that's an important issue. Like wasting doses is really problematic. Like in other words, we're actually measuring if we're wasting doses. Like I looked at some data last week. It looked like 0.2% of our doses have been wasted so far, which isn't many. We'd obviously like it to be zero, but that's important, but really don't want to waste doses. I think one of the things you're really seeing occur though among people is it's kind of frustrating being someone in the general public right now waiting to get a vaccine because everybody wants it. And really when you look at the strategy in Rhode Island, I think it's been like a lot of other states is look, we're trying to get the high risk people vaccinated first, people at greatest risk of dying, people at the greatest risk of ending up in the hospital, but we've also done healthcare providers. And, and I think it gets to, why have we done healthcare providers? So Dr. Chin, why do you think it was important to get healthcare providers in the mix sooner than later on this? Yeah, I think it's important. You know, healthcare workers are being exposed day in and day out to COVID-19, especially hospital-based uh, workers. Uh, obviously, their risks, uh, their lives are uh, at risk on the line. And I think one other thing that we've, uh, you know, and by the way, these are recommendations from the CDC, um, of course, endorsed by the Rhode Island Department of Health. But one thing we've seen in other places as well is once the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed, and I don't want to underestimate the staffing needs there, but once the healthcare a hospital system or, or clinics become overwhelmed, is that the death rates really exponentially increase because people can't get the care that they need. And I'm reminded, you know, we've started, you know, back to your point, Dr. McDonald, too, about uh, older age, et cetera. I'm reminded that the fatality rates, the death rates uh, in individuals who are 75 years of age and older um, are, are above 10%. So people that get COVID-19 uh, who are older have an incredibly high mortality rate. And the other thing I think to keep in mind, too, for the healthcare setting is a lot of healthcare settings routinely care for for the older, um, the, the more fragile, the immunocompromised. And so there's also a risk, of course, of healthcare workers transmitting disease infection to the older population. So for many reasons, it was incredibly important to, to shore up our healthcare system before moving on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was thinking of too, in addition to that was healthcare workers, we, we just quite frankly need them to take care of us when we're sick, but when there's so much disease prevalence in our communities, 
you know, it, it, it's actually likely we're going to be exposed more likely in a general public than we are in a hospital sometimes, uh, because at least in the hospital, we've got our personal protective equipment. And I think about one of the things we've seen, it's been a really a challenge for nursing homes in particular, is a lot of the healthcare workers live in communities that are really densely populated, and, and then healthcare workers are acquiring disease. We find them, though, when we do our surveillance testing, in other words, our screening testing on these folks every week. And so we're catching those cases early, which is a good strategy. But if we can vaccinate the healthcare workers, it's all the more likely we can protect them and therefore protect the folks in our nursing homes, which is really important to do. Same thing for assisted living as well, but also for hospitals. But I'm just really cognizant that so often healthcare workers just live in the same community everyone else does, and they put themselves at risk. Um, and, and so we really need the healthcare workers because it's not like we can just invent doctors or nurses or respiratory therapists or physical therapists to go deliver healthcare. Um, they all take many years to train and to make effective and competent at their job. And so I think those some of the concepts of why getting healthcare workers done sooner than later was a really important thing to do. You know, one of the challenges with this is it's a multi-dose vaccine series. You know, it's too bad it all wasn't one and done for everybody. And I think that's one of the other challenges about this is getting folks to get both vaccines. How important to you, Dr. Chen, is it for, for people to get both vaccines, particularly the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine? How important do you think it is that they actually get both doses? Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, different uh, experts, different people disagree on this. You know, the data that's currently available from Pfizer and Moderna suggests after one dose that their vaccines may be about 50% effective. Um, it is unclear if you look at the FDA and what they've said about it, it's unclear how long that 50% lasts, uh, uh, et cetera. So I, there's limited data. Uh, the FDA will tell you that, and I agree with it. Uh, but it definitely appears that there is significantly reduced um, efficacy for people that only get one dose of the uh, Moderna and Pfizer. And I think that's incredibly important, especially as we look at some of these variants, uh, which may have some reduced, uh, which may lead to some reduced activity of the vaccines. It is important to get that second dose, uh, in, in my opinion, and that's what's recommended. And that's what we're currently doing at the moment. Dr. McDonald, let me ask you this. I think one other uh, hot topic, sensitive topic that's come up is, you know, initially when we talked about our COVID uh, vaccination plan, we had talked about potentially including some occupations and, and certainly in phase two, phase three. And I, I think uh, as we switch to the age-based uh, approach to really uh, look at morbidity, mortality, and minimize that, um, I think that there was a sense that uh, we excluded some of the occupations that perhaps should be prioritized. What are your what are your thoughts about that? And, and how would you answer that question? Yeah, it's an interesting because when you think about occupations, we think about folks who are critical infrastructure workers to make our country work, right? In other words, we need teachers, we need truck drivers, we need plumbers, you know, and there's other professions that quite frankly are just needed. So you could make an argument that we should, you know, vaccinate occupations. The problem with that approach is you're putting more people at risk of dying. And you're, to me, you're prolonging the pandemic. And the reason I say you're prolonging the pandemic is the quickest way to get back to normal, as far as I can see, is getting the death rate below that of influenza and keeping our hospitals from becoming overflowed. I think if we can do that, we can re you know, relieve restrictions and get back to normal much quicker. And just say, for example, we're gonna say, look, you know, we're gonna just vaccinate all the truck drivers. Truck drivers are important, they're really important people. We desperately need them, um, but they may not be in the high risk group. You know, and you could make another argument. You could say, well, gee, there's been some industries that have been just devastated by the pandemic. Hospitality industry is, is one that comes to mind. For people who work at hotels, restaurants, they've just been devastated by this. But on the other hand, 
if they weren't the highest risk of passing away or ending up in the hospital, it doesn't relieve the restrictions quicker. And, and this gets to the whole issue is what we're really trying to do is relieve the restrictions as quick as possible. And we do that by protecting people from passing away and ending up in the hospital. And that's why an occupation approach to me doesn't get there as quickly. And it, it doesn't mean teachers aren't important. Obviously we need teachers, um, and it, but it, it does vary about exposure. And one of the things I think we have to be cognizant of is that a lot of folks, their exposure is from their life and their community, uh, not just their occupation. In other words, it's, it's where you live that you've got a fair amount of exposure and the things you do that bring you exposure as well. We know that when people are in structured settings where they wear masks, stay six feet apart to the extent that's done and there's appropriate indoor air quality and good access to hand sanitizer, the structured settings that were doing pretty well. I mean, I don't know, Dr. Chan, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think those are all good answers. I mean, the other thing I like to remind uh, myself and others is that, uh, you know, is that age is not mutually exclusive with uh, occupations, meaning as we focus, uh, start to focus on the age groups, it, it cross cuts all occupations. And I think, as you correctly pointed out, it, it touches those that are most at risk. And the other thing, too, that I don't think we uh, mentioned yet is that we're also focusing early on on people with other medical histories, right? So people who are going to be more at risk, people with kidney disease, heart disease, lung disease, immunocompromised cancer, et cetera. So I think to your point, we're really trying to prioritize people that are just at risk of getting sick with COVID-19. And that, as a physician, that just intuitively makes sense to me. Yeah, and it makes sense to me too. Like I'm very sympathetic to the people who are younger than 65, but have those underlying health conditions. Someone who's got, someone who's on dialysis and their kidneys don't work and they're on dialysis. Obviously we just learned from that group, they're just more likely to end up in the hospital. And someone who's immunocompromised, in other words, their immune system's not working, could be for a variety of reasons. Either they're on chemotherapy for getting cancer, or maybe their immune system just, you know, wasn't working that well. And that, you know, they told by their doctor, they'd be careful to avoid infection. It can be life-threatening. These are people who are much higher risk of ending up in the hospital or passing away. And so those people with those chronic conditions, those underlying conditions are, are higher risk as well. And this gets to trying to come up with a prioritization plan that makes sense. Now, you know, a lot of states are approaching this in a very similar manner. You know, one of the big problems we're stuck with is just quite frankly, limited supply of vaccine, uh, which is problematic. I mean, right now, what's limiting us right now isn't vaccinators. We got plenty of people who can give a vaccine. We just are running into a problem where we just acquired more vaccine. I'm optimistic our supply is going to improve in the next few weeks. I don't know. It's not going to be enough, but I, I definitely see progress. I know even last week, we started getting a little bit more vaccine and I have reason to believe in the next few weeks we're going to get more. So it would allow us to move things through quicker. And it really just speaks to this as a nation. We really just need to have a national vaccine strategy. I mean, I think one of the things you're seeing occur is each state having to figure out how they're going to do its population. And, you know, I don't want to sound critical of the federal government, but it would have been helpful if there was just simply a overarching national vaccination strategy where we all were saying, look, let's all follow the same path here and do this together. Uh, this is one of those times where I th don't think the state borders have helped us all that much. Um, and I, I think this is one of those things where together we could have done a better job than we are as 50 individual states. Because right now, I think what you're seeing is a fair amount of difference with states. Some states opened up to people of all ages. Other states are doing it with more of an age-based approach. It does create some challenges and questions, which kind of gets me to another question. Like, you know, why shouldn't this have just been a first come, first serve thing? Like, why couldn't we have let the vaccine out? To the highest bidder, let people pay what they usually would pay and, you know, let people just buy their vaccine, whatever. I mean, why, why do it the way it's been done? Any thoughts on that, Dr. Chan? 
It's a great question. You know, I think if we had done that, that uh, certainly people with means, uh, maybe not people at highest risk, would have been able to access it first. And so I think it's a good question. Um, and I think to the point about geographies, we really have tried to prioritize uh, these communities that are hardest hit. And I, I think, you know, I always remember that a vaccine in anyone's arm in Rhode Island, right, is one step closer to protecting all of us. Um, and definitely by prioritizing those that are at higher risk, at higher risk of getting sick, at higher risk of transmitting, um, is a way that we're going to end this pandemic faster. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. McDonald? Yeah, I know I agree. I mean, I think the, the problem with the first come, first served model for just anybody is the people who can afford it, you know, and, and that's kind of the way we're used to a lot of these things. But it's like, we're not talking about releasing a toy that's popular for Christmas or a brand new iPhone. What we're talking about is a life-saving medication. And, and I think this gets to one of the things about the ethics around this. And I think the ethics around vaccine prioritization are so critical because what we're trying to do is really reduce death in our general population and reduce the risk of people ending up in a hospital. But we want to do this in a way that's equitable or fair and just, and quite frankly, you know, vaccinating the wealthy first, letting them buy their privilege doesn't really get us there. Um, and it, it isn't an effective public health strategy. And it's also just not ethical. Um, and it kind of gets me thinking that, you know, one of the things I've seen in Rhode Island, there's a nice vaccine subcommittee that's done some great thinking about why we prioritize things the way we have. It's not always been the most popular decisions, but a lot of times doing the right thing isn't always popular. Uh, so, you know, I'm very grateful for people who are willing to do the hard thinking the consistent thinking to get us to the right place on vaccines. Because quite frankly, this is the thing where it's about keeping the public healthy, not necessarily happy, but healthy. In other words, we want to get people to the right place here um, and achieve our, our goals as a state here. You know, we're getting to close to the end of our episode, Dr. Chan. I mean, one of the things I've seen as we've, as we've looked at the vaccine strategy in Rhode Island, what we've really done is looked at the current vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer, found them both to be really safe and efficacious. We're excited about what's gonna happen with the next one coming out, which looks like the Johnson Johnson one. And we're curious about the Novavax one as well. The one thing I've seen though, is our strategy has really been about trying to be fair, trying to be just saying, look, we wanna prevent people from passing away from this horrible disease. Wanna keep people out of the hospital, but by the way, we gotta have a healthy workforce that can do all this. That's the quickest way to get us back to normal. Those are what I think have been the guiding principles in our state. We're trying to do this in an ethical and, and just manner. And, and Dr. Chan, as we get ready for your final word, any any thoughts on this today? No, just that, you know, I think at the end of the day, Dr. McDonald, what you're alluding to is we're, we're doing our best. Uh, we're getting input from uh, the community, from others, uh, as these decisions are made. Uh, they're not being made by any one person. Uh, we're trying to be transparent uh, and then we're trying to have a, a structure and also base it on the data and the science and obviously uh, trying to keep people healthy uh, and alive, frankly, especially looking at vaccinating older adults. So all those things are coming to play. But just reminding people, you know, we don't always have all the answers and definitely feel free to reach out to us with any feedback. And uh, we're always looking to improve the process. So thank you, everyone, for your for your patience on this. Dr. Chen, do you have a final word for us today? I do. Uh, in closing, I leave uh, folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is. Make your health and wellness a top priority and always take care of yourself so you're ready to take care of others. That was from the Buddha. Thank you all and be well. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. I want to thank Jose Garcia, our executive producer. I want to thank Carol Stone, our technical director. Everybody have a good and keep up the great.